Nazis. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. I'm sorry, I always cry when I read scripture, so bear with me. Um, immediately he rose, and all the res residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples were hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hands and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It, is, it became known through all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon, a tanner. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have a strong heart. Thank you, God, that you long for us, and that you are gracious. There's no name stronger than your name. There's nothing that can separate us from who you are and what you've called us to be, and you can raise things from the dead. Your name is strong enough to raise things from the dead, God. We praise your name this morning. We soften our hearts and open our ears to hear the good works that you have for us. Lord, I just pray that you would, you would speak to us and you would be with Tommy as he preaches over us, God, that your word is true, that it's everlasting, and we can believe in it, that it has power beyond all of our own limitations, that we can just set aside and say, God, you can raise things from the dead in my life. Thank you, God, that you're so good. Help us trust you, God. Help us believe in your word, God. We love you in Jesus' name. March 26th, uh, 1999, uh, my wife Elisa's brother Troy was competing at a college track meet in Kentucky, and he returned to his college in Sewanee, Tennessee that evening. Through the, throughout the night, Troy became very ill with excessive vomiting and high fever. He asked to be admitted to the hospital in Sewanee early Sunday morning, uh, March uh, 27th which was Palm Sunday. He was admitted with a 104.9 temperature, dehydrated, incoherent, uh, somewhat combative, and with a rash beginning to be seen on his body. The rash soon formed lesions um, that went throughout his body. He was put on antibiotics, and testing began on Troy's vital signs. The most alarming sign was that the, his white blood count had dropped drastically to 2,300. A normal white blood count um, for a healthy person is between, between 12,000 and 15,000. And, and, and normally when a person gets sick, their white blood count goes up. Um, however, in Troy's case, the infection in his body was so fast moving and devastating that his whole body began to shut down. Uh, Troy's kidneys were failing, his heart was failing, his lungs were failing, and he was in trouble. He was placed in the medical intensive care unit where he was put on oxygen, heavy doses of antibiotics, and was connected to electronic heart temperature and oxygen level sensors. A battery of doctors, including specialists, um, 
and infectious disease, pulmonary and respiratory areas, were gathered to save Troy's life. He was diagnosed with a disease um, called meningococcal sepsis. Um, this was an infection throughout his entire bloodstream. Elise and her parents flew uh, to be with him as quickly as they could. When they arrived at the hospital, uh, my wife's uncle, uh, Tom, who had been working in Knoxville just two hours away, uh, met them at the lobby. His face uh, gave way to the gravity of the situation. He tried to be with Troy as much as he possibly could, but he, he, it was agonizing for him to see Troy suffer the way he did. As they entered Troy's room, they immediately noticed his extremely labored breathing. It was as if he were suffocating or as if he had just run a marathon. His arms were covered in dark purple lesions that ranged in size from, from a quarter to three inches by eight inches. The doctor pulled them aside and gave them the report. I want you to know Troy is very, very, very sick. He has meningococcal sepsis. This airborne bacterium has gotten into his bloodstream and was spreading exponentially. The toxins and poisons from the bacteria have affected every organ of his body. His white blood count fell to 2,300, indicating that his body was being overwhelmed and he wasn't able to resist the disease. His kidneys shut down yesterday. The lesions that you see were caused by the body leaking fluids. He also was hemorrhaging on the inside of his body with lesions on his organs and his muscles. Because the body lost so much fluid quickly, Troy's blood pressure went down to almost nothing as there was not sufficient blood to pump. His heart muscles have weakened and his valves are leaking. We're trying to get his blood pressure up. The oxygen level in his body is very low and his breathing is very labored because his lungs are filling up with fluid. Your son is very, very, very sick. Without treatment, 90% of the people who get this disease die within 24 hours. This is a devastating disease, they said, that affects all the organs of the body. We can treat the bacteria with antibiotics, but we can't do anything about his kidneys, his heart, his lungs, his liver, his brain, or the other organs of his body. If we do everything right, he lingered on and emphasized the words everything and right, there's a 50-50 chance of surviving, but likely with permanent effects. Your son is very, very, very sick. On the second day, the doctors came to them and said, you may notice when, when you go to see Troy that his fingers and toes have become um, dark with blood. The capillaries have, have shut down the blood flow to the fingers, the toes, and perhaps to the hands and the feet. We need to talk about amputation so gangrene doesn't set in. Throughout our lives, we will find ourselves at times in overwhelming moments. We'll find ourselves in moments that, that defy our individual capacity to manage, to solve, to sometimes even process what's taking place in our lives. Some may be as dramatic as this moment. Some may be a, as deeply dramatic a, a, as the moment that, that my wife and her parents found themselves in, in that hospital room in Tennessee. Some are less so. But every one of us knows what I mean when I say we will find ourselves in those overwhelming moments that stretch us beyond ourselves, beyond our ability to resolve the situation within our capacity, within, within our talent, within our wisdom, within our own strength. And it's in those moments that the message of a sovereign, loving, powerful, life-giving God, the message that we as the church has to offer becomes so important. This morning we step back into our series on the book of Acts entitled Unstoppable. 
I want to remind you guys that, that the inspiration for the series title comes from Jesus' response to Peter when, when in Matthew chapter 16, where, where Peter declares his belief that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus goes to the disciples and said, who do you guys say that I am? And, and, and all the disciples say, well, some people say prophets, some people say this, some people say that. But, P, but, but when Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter's declaration was, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Jesus responds to that statement with this declaration. He says, Peter, it is upon, it is upon that, it is upon that declaration that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is such an important understanding as we walk through this, this study because what we're really studying, what we're really looking at in the book of Acts is the establishment of that church, of the church that Jesus Christ said he was building. And the church he's saying he was building is the church that is on the move. This is why he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he, uses, he uses a militaristic imagery of an army that is going to the front gates of a city and attacking that city. And he's saying the, 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 the gates of hell will not be able to defend against the onslaught of the oncoming church of Jesus Christ that he's building. That it will be the unstoppable church. And this is important for us to realize because as we look through, as we look at and as we walk through the book of Acts, the book talks about that church that he's building, the one that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And the example of the church of Acts, through its message, through, through its methods, through, through its actions and its attitudes, becomes a pattern we should follow if we're going to be that unstoppable church. And this morning's text is no different. It leads us to an understanding of how the church, with the power of the Holy Spirit, can move into those overwhelming moments and bring the power of God. John Piper, in his commentary on this morning's passage, speaks about the book of Acts, and he says this, the point of the book of Acts, the point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life is that Jesus is alive and in charge of the world, and that he butts in and changes things. He does not like a fatalistic attitudes. He does not like pessimistic, cyclical views of history or personal life or family life. Views that say things just go in circles. They don't go anywhere. The yo-yo of fate never comes off its strings and the sails in some wonderfully unexpected arc through the sky. But it does. The world is not a machine. It's a drama. And there is a live author-director named Jesus who can and does jump on the set anytime he wants and boggle the mind of the actors who think they know the script. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus is alive and that he turns things around. I want you to have the kind of open-ended expectancy to your life because Jesus is alive. When we look at the book of Acts, this is what we're, we're taught. This is what we're shown, that the, that, that, that the unstoppable church moves because the power of God intercedes. The power of God intervenes. This is what we see in this morning's text. Now, remember, remember the description of the church uh, that we saw in verse 31 as we lead into this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The, 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 the framework of the, of the story was we just read is that God had already been on the move, that God had already orchestrated things in which the church was moving forward and, and the church was, was gaining ground. And from there, we get to the first story we read this morning. It's the story of Aeneas, a man who was paralyzed for eight years. 
He was bedridden for eight years. How many of you believe that, that you would be in that place in a moment beyond your capacity? You're, you're discovered, you discover in that moment your inability to change it, right? Nobody's, nobody's laying in that bed for eight years because it's a part of their plan or it's a part of their orchestration. And so here we have Aeneas and he, he, he's paralyzed for eight years and Peter walks in and he simply says this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arises and all who saw believed. What we see here is Jesus Christ stepping in with power, with authority to change the moment, to change the situation so that others may see who God is. Into the most desperate moments a person might have, the church with the message of healing through the sovereign power of God steps in and provides an answer. An answer that advances the unstoppable move of the church. I want to remind you again that as we walk through this, the whole idea is for us to look at this church in Acts and say, how did they respond? How did God use them? What did, what did God do through them? What was, what was, what was their, their methodology? What was, what, 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 what was their heart's cry? What was their attitude? Because it sets for us a pattern to be the unstoppable church. The second story again is, is about an individual about individuals who are beyond themselves in grief, weeping over the loss of their dear friend. Many of us have been here, right? We've been in that moment. We know what it's like to, to be confronted with death and, and to go, I can't do anything about this. To be overwhelmed with the fear of it, to be overwhelmed with the loss of it. And say, this moment is beyond me. But again, Peter, in the power of God, steps in. The sovereign power of God to raise her up, manifesting God's power and advancing the unstoppable church. It says that Peter gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The power of God through his church to step into moments such as this in the name of Jesus was and is a gift to the church for his purposes. When we look at the, when we look at the book of Acts, there were 10 specific times in which we see this very thing taking place. The recording of this church, the recording of the church of God that is unstoppable, that is on the move, we see a 10 different times in which the, the act of healing as a ministry of the church through the power of God is recorded. If we're going to stand here, if we're going to, if we're going to say, listen, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we want to see how God used them and what God did through them and see that as the example of what we should be that we have to be drawn to these lessons. We have to be, be drawn to these, to, to these moments. The unstoppable church sees God heal. That's what we see when we look in the book of Acts. And I, and I, and I don't believe it was just for that moment. I don't believe it was just for that time because as I go into the, to, to the admonitions and the, and the instruction and the teaching of the apostles to the church, it leads us to, to embrace and expect the healing touch of God in our midst. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as a part of the ministry of the church, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, and to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. So when Paul writes to the church, when Paul writes to us, 
And he describes how God is going to manifest himself in our churches, in each one of us, through different gifts to us as the church. One of them, he says, is the gift of healing. And not just in this idea that, 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 that Paul describes that this gift is given, but when you read in James, James instructs us. He instructs the church, and he says this, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So James writes to us and he says, I want you to pray for each other. I want you as the church to come together and pray for each other for what? Healing. Do you believe that James would give us that instruction if he didn't believe that God wanted to break into the lives of people through the church in this miraculous way? Of course not. So when we look at this, what we see is that, that God wants us to be a church that's on the move. The unstoppable church is empowered by the Spirit to step into moments of desperation with the power of God so that he might be declared true. And I don't believe, nor do I think the Bible teaches, that there is an expiration date on that. And part of why I believe this is because the continuation of Troy's story. You see, the week following Palm Sunday was not good. The doctors feared permanent damage to his heart and to his organs. He had sustained a dangerously high fever for so long, and they anticipated brain damage. And the gangrene that they had feared appeared to be setting in. In fact, on Good Friday, Troy was so bad that he couldn't receive friends of his who wanted to visit him. But God had given Elise and her family a passage from Psalms 118. And they'd put it on some boards and they'd hung it above his bed and it said this, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And my father-in-law's belief and declaration on that Good Friday was that it doesn't look very good for Troy at this time. But on Good Friday, but like on a Good Friday, just like this one, it didn't look good for Jesus either. And he said, however, Sunday is coming. And Easter Sunday did come. Let me read you Elise's account of that day. We gathered around Troy's bed and began to pray in the spirit. Pastor Greg Alex stood at the foot of the bed. As we started to pray without any forethought on our part, we began to rebuke the disease that was afflicting Troy in Jesus' name. A great power came into the room. We knew we were in the presence of the one with all authority. All of a sudden, we felt this oppressing force leave. We knew it was gone. We knew that the evil power of this disease was defeated and had departed. We began to praise and worship God. We lifted our hands and spoke out our praises. We thank God for Troy's deliverance. The high fever that had plagued Troy left him. It was 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Easter Sunday, 1999. At the very time we were praying, my Aunt Faith in Rochester, Minnesota was praying and was under a heavy burden of intercessory prayer for Troy's healing. She said that all of a sudden as she was praying, her prayer turned into praise. She had been earnestly interceding when without a conscious effort, she began to praise and thank the Lord for Troy's healing. She knew in her heart that Troy was healed. She knew it was done. It was 8 p.m. Central Time. The exact time we were praying in Chattanooga. At the very same time, Troy's grandmother, Ruby Riney, was pacing the floor of her living room and praying for Troy. All of a sudden, she said, Lord, you have healed him. Troy is healed. She knew Troy was healed and began to praise God for his healing. 
This was at 8 o'clock p.m. From that moment on, Troy began to heal. None of Troy's organs were harmed. His brain suffered no damage. The gangrene began to recede, and the doctors literally, literally said, this is a miracle. Troy eventually went back to college, competed again, and set five running, running records at his school. See the power of God to intervene, to not abandon us to fatalistic pessimism, to manifest his power for the mission of the church is real. And it's something we need to understand better and seek more clearly. There are so many misunderstandings when we come to this conversation that I really believe it's necessary to provide a better context for the gift of healing in the church. We have to understand that healing is the sovereign work of a loving father for his glory and for our good. Healing is the sovereign work of a loving father for his glory and our good. The gift of healing, we have to understand, is the sovereign work of a loving father. See, this puts into proper perspective the work of healing. Unfortunately, healing, like everything as it relates to Christianity, too often, by our, by our view of Christianity, specifically, I think the American, the American uh, incarnation of Christianity, has become about us. And, and healing, like everything else, as it relates to Christianity, is not about us, and it doesn't flow from us. We have a tendency, as I say, especially in, in this American expression of Christianity, to put us at the center of it all. That God is all about us. That he exists to serve us. And, and the reality is, even as I say that, I, I think for people, that it, it's this shocking, uh, this, this shocking declaration that God isn't all about us. God's about God, ultimately. And, and what he does in our lives, what he, how he moves in our lives, is so that glory may be brought to him. And God doesn't serve us. We serve God. God doesn't exist for our purposes. We exist for his purposes. That's what this whole thing's about. And too often in our understanding of Christianity, we continue to wade into this and believe it's about us, it's for us, it's from us, it's us. And, and, and this, this, this leaks into so many different areas of our, of our understanding of Christianity. It leaks into our, into our salvation. We've made it about us, by us, through us. We make it, we make it all about, he did it because, because it was all about me. And then I'll, I'll maintain it, I'll save it, I'll have it by what I do. And we've moved the focus off of where it should be, which is on the sovereignty of God and the glory of God onto the comfort and the safety of us. That's simply not true. That, that, understanding, that understanding guts the total, the, the total realization of what Christianity really is. And unless we understand that, our view of Christianity, it becomes warped. And healing is no different. Healing is the sovereign work of a loving father. And I want to stop there. Healing is God's sovereign work. It's not by us. We're not the agents. It's not dependent on us. It comes when, when faithful people reach out and trust in the power of a sovereign God. God moves in healing when there's a group of people who say, I believe he's powerful and I believe he's sovereign and I believe he rules and reigns over all. Now, now there have stated, what I've stated there is we have to reach out in faith. 
And the, the reality is we do. We, we have to position ourselves in a place in which we are living in faith. But you've got to understand what we mean by that faith. We don't have faith for something. We have faith in someone. Too often what we've done is it, as it relates to healing or anything else. It's about if I believe, 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 if I believe that's going to happen, then it'll happen. Okay? That's not so much Christianity as it is Oprah. Okay? Christianity is the declaration that God is sovereign. That God that God rules and reigns over all things. That God that God, that God has the ability, the authority over all things. The authority over our life, the authority over our sickness, the authority over all things. And he is the sovereign God who will work and do that which brings glory to himself. It is his power, his reign over all things. And it is his ability and even desire to heal. It is having faith in the attributes, in the nature of God. It's not about you. Sam Storms, I think, describes this relationship well. Faith is not a weapon by which we demand things from God or put him in subjugation to us. Faith is an act of self-denial. Faith is a renunciation of one's ability to do anything and a confession that God can do everything. Faith derives its power not from the spiritual energy of the person who believes, but the supernatural efficacy of the object of belief, which is God. It is not faith's act, but its object that accounts for the miraculous. It is not our faith to create something. It is our faith that we have set ourselves, every aspect of ourselves, in the hands of a sovereign, loving Father. It ultimately, it, ultimately, it ultimately means when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to those overwhelming moments, we, we don't give in to the hopelessness of them or, or even the inevitability of them, but we reach out in the acknowledgement of the power of a sovereign father. Look at the text we read in Acts chapter 9. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Where does he immediately turn everyone's attention? To Jesus Christ, right? He doesn't go into this and say, he doesn't go into this and say, say, Aeneas, I now heal you. He doesn't go into this and say, Aeneas, now you can heal yourself. He steps in and he says, Jesus Christ now heals you. It is his work. It is his hand. It is his power. It is his sovereignty manifested in the work of healing there. So in his sovereignty, he heals. It's, it's not by us or on us, but rests in the authority of the Father. Even Jesus, and to me this is just a fascinating, this is a fascinating idea. Even Jesus, when confronted by the Pharisees after healing someone, so Jesus goes and he heals someone, and they come over to Jesus to, to criticize him for it. In John chapter 5, he responds by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. When you walk through the, book of, through the book of John, every step of the way, you see Jesus Christ declaring himself in, in submission to the leading and the guiding of the Father. And every time he goes where the Father leads him, every time he does what the Father tells him, the miraculous takes place. Jesus himself says, it's not about what I determine or what I want, but it's what the Father calls on, what the Father directs me to do, what the Father is doing. So in his sovereignty, he heals. But he is also a father who loves you. We have to have a trust in both of these truths. 
We, ha we have to have a trust in both of these truths. The truth of the matter is, the concept of the sovereignty of God becomes oppressive if you don't couple it with the truth that he also loves you and wants good for you and desires to work in you. God loves us and, 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 and in his authority and in his power and in his strength and in his reign, he is working out of that love for us. He is working in his sovereignty from his love for you. Again, Storms talks about faith in God's heart for healing and his goodness and his grace to his children. Every time Jesus healed, we catch a glimpse into his heart. Healing as a window into the soul of our Savior reveals the depth of his care and compassion for people. People came to Jesus for healing because they knew they would find in him someone who would understand their pain their frustration, their grief, their confusion. Their healing flowed out of their personal encounter with a caring, loving person. Jesus embodied for them concern, compassion, and power. Healing is an expression of God's nature. Healing is an expression of who he is. It is about God showing who he is and that's why I said healing is the sovereign work of a loving father for his glory. Do you see how this flows? What's happening in this is God is sovereign, and when he heals, he reveals his sovereignty. But God is also loving, and when he heals, he reveals his compassionate nature, and he can reveals his love for you. Even this amazing act of grace is meant to magnify and glorify the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's about Him being seen. It's really not even about our comfort. It's not, it's not about our ease. It's about Him revealing his, his nature, His power, His grace, His mercy, His compassion. Yes, God is being merciful to us in this act of healing but it is so that people may see he's merciful. Yes, the Spirit is bringing restoration to us, but it is so that he may declare himself as the restorer and others will know that truth. One of the most stunning exchanges for me in all of Christ's ministry is the one in which he comes to the man who's been blind since birth. Let me guys remember that story. A man who's been blind since birth comes before Jesus. And, and, and the prevailing understanding in that time, and unfortunately it's an understanding that too many in the church have in this time, was that somehow what, what the bad things that were happening to people was a result of their sin. Because he's blind, because he is this, he must have done something wrong. And they came to him and they said, this man who was blind since birth, whose sin caused this? Was it the sin of his parents or himself? Now, I want you guys for just a moment to set on that question. And, and, and I want you to set on that question because I believe there is heretical teaching that many of us have, been, have heard or maybe even embraced that somehow when bad things happen to you, it's because you're a sinner. Bad things happen is because we're sinners, yes. But that's just because that's what happens. It's not specifically pointed towards us. You're a sinner, so therefore I'm going to punish you. We live in a world of sin. Bad things happen. That's it. So they came to Jesus and they said, who caused this man to be blind? If you're here today and you have a sickness or you have, things, or you have financial situations that are bad or whatever else it may be, don't ever let somebody tell you that God's punishing you because you're a sinner. Okay? So the man comes, the man comes to Jesus. They come to Jesus and they say, whose sin caused this, his parents or his own? And Jesus' reply is neither. And then what does he say? It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. And so Jesus Christ lays hands on him and the man is healed. What a, what a, what a, what a stunning interaction. He's, they asked him, why was he blind for his whole life? 
Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' response is, he wasn't blind for his whole life because of either of those things, but so that the glory of God may be revealed through him in this moment at this time. The man's situation, the man's, the man's circumstances was for the glory of God. And the man's healing was for the glory of God. All of this is for his glory. And I want you guys to understand another part of it. All of it is for his glory. I stand before you as somebody who sat and watched as both my parents died of cancer. As somebody who spent hours praying that God would heal them. And I'm going to tell you something. Neither of my parents ever lost faith in God's sovereign power. Nor did they ever lose faith in his loving goodness and his desire to want to bring glory to himself through them. They sat in their circumstances and their situations, continually believing in the power of God to heal them, in his sovereign power to restore them. But what was more important to them than even that is that God would use them and their circumstances for his glory. Because their faith wasn't in something. It wasn't in something happening. It was in someone. It was the belief that they served a sovereign, loving father who was working to bring glory to himself and good into their lives. And that's what, exactly what God did. Every step of the way, God was glorified in their circumstances. God was glorified in their lives because their faith was in them, continually de- in him, continually declaring his goodness. See, the postures of those who seek him and his touch is that I am here for God's glory. I believe he loves me. I believe he's powerful enough to heal me. I submit myself completely and totally to him. And I want what takes place in my life to testify to the glory of God. Their posture is, God, in your sovereignty and in your love, make me an instrument of your glory. A church that is yielded to his purpose, that is yielded to his glory, is the church that will see the power of God manifested in their midst. The church that is, that is, that is conditioned, the church that is, that is focused and fixated on their own comfort, their own prosperity, will only see things that come forward that are personal, things that are, things that are selfish, things that are man-focused. It is for his glory. No matter where you're at right now, no matter what, you're, what burden you're bringing into this place, the answer is to put your faith in a sovereign God, a God who reigns over all circumstances and all situations, a God, a God who wants to bring glory through your circumstances and your situation to his name. A God who loves you deeply and wants good for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that we can, in full assurance, trust in you. Father, may we turn to you and we may we see the miraculous done through you. Hi, my name is Darren Matthews and this is my story.
About 12 years ago, when I was a senior in college, I had an accident and it changed my life for a long time. I had 10 years of chronic neck pain after that. It was a sports accident. I was actually doing a header, a diving header, to make a goal in a soccer game. That would be really cool, actually, it didn't happen that way. It was in a PE class doing a push-up test. So yeah, I tweaked my neck and it just never went back. I tried all the things. I tried, you know, just waiting it out because when you're in your early 20s, you're like, it'll go away, whatever, I'm fine. And then the months keep going on and then you start talking to people and getting references for doctors, but you still don't go to the doctor, you know, for a while. Um, but I was in chiropractor's offices and started doing physical therapy and tried to exercise it away. And I even found like a neck specialist who worked with my neck and kept pushing on, kept going, oh, I think yoga is the answer. I'll do tons of yoga or this or that. Or, that didn't work. Okay, that made it worse. I'll do nothing. I'll just relax. I'll de-stress. Power of the mind. I don't have neck pain. This is fine. I'm fine. This is not hurting me. It's not that big of a deal. That didn't work. So about five years into it, I just gave up. I just went, okay, I'm going to cope with this. I'm going to ask my husband for neck massages like every day and whine a lot <laughs> and just deal. Around that time in my life, I was learning about prayer and that maybe there was something that I was missing out on um, with, with prayer and the Holy Spirit. And I had a friend tell me, oh, I totally believe that God wants you healed. And I, it kind of shocked me like, okay, then why am I not, I mean, I've prayed for it a little bit, right? And it got me thinking and I started doing some reading and started learning about this huge world of prayer that's going on where people straight up ask God to heal them physically. Not just a little bit, not just help the doctor's hands, um, but like, heal me, God. And, and I'm a proponent of doctors. That, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, just ask God and don't go to the doctor. Um, but when the doctors don't have any answers, I found out maybe, maybe you can go to God and I started praying and, and rereading the Bible, rereading what Jesus says about asking God and, and having faith to move mountains and, you know, ask anything. And if you have faith, it will be done for you. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't have faith, I guess, because I've asked. I don't really have faith that God is going to heal me. So how do I get this faith? I just went looking for it and I talked to as many people as I could who had some faith in, in miracles, in healings, and I heard testimonies and I started hearing, you know, finding books full of testimonies. I actually called a prayer meeting. I called a few of my friends and I said, you guys, I'm just, I'm ready to try again. Please pray for my neck. And I would, I would have people pray for me every single Sunday at church. I'm just like, I'm going for this. If this happens, I'm going to find out. Um, if, if it's God's will that I don't suffer this way, I'm, I'm going to find out. They came over to my house and they prayed and, you know, one of my friends was like, why don't, why don't you pray and we'll, we'll put our hands on your neck. I'm like, okay, dear God, um, you know, I have a great life. I'm so thankful for my life. So, you know, it would be great if you could heal my neck pain though, because, it, you know, I don't like it. <laughs> and, and my friend, one of my friends stopped me. He just said, do you ask your dad? Like, when you were a kid, did you ask your dad if you could open the refrigerator? <laughs> like, and it was just, it was like, okay, it's my father. Oh yeah, that's like the main metaphor in the Bible that he gives us for himself, father. Okay, I have a great father. I'm gonna pray to that guy. And I felt myself get like angry. And it was okay. It was like I went into the presence of my father and I said, I'm so mad about this. This is taking so much away from my life. Like, you've got to do something. 
<laughs> and I just let myself get a little bit angry about it and be a little, be a lot more entitled to like, if my dad has the answers, he's gonna give them to me. My dad would give his right arm for me to be pain-free. So why do I treat my Heavenly Father so different? And it just all hit me at that moment, like, oh yeah, I've been taught this for my whole life. And the pain actually, it was kind of still there, but I noticed that it moved to the other side of my neck. And it had never done that in, in 10 years. It had never moved from like the spot that was like pinched back there. And I went, well, that's weird. Okay, um, I'm just gonna remain open. And so the pain moved to the other side of my neck for a couple weeks even. And then it moved here for a couple weeks. And I was like, this is weird. This has never happened. I don't know what's going on, but this is cool. I know God did something. I'm not gonna like speak against this. I'm not gonna be negative about it. I'm not gonna say, which I had said in the past, well, if it was a healing, then it would be all at once, right? No, God gave me an adjustment and my body was working it out. So it went here for two weeks, here for two weeks, here for two weeks, and then it was gone forever. Like haven't had it in years. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks for, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask?